right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. Going solo today here on RCST. Adam's all good. He'll be back tomorrow. We got Matt Tate joining the show in about 30 minutes from right now. We'll talk a bunch of KU basketball with Matt, and uh, then we'll be joined by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports at about 440. I mentioned yesterday, there's still a little time for you to get in on this, on my Twitter account, at Radio. You might have to scroll down a little now, but um, on there I'm doing a ticket giveaway. Two tickets to give away, so just one pair of tickets. For the KU Stephen F. Austin game on Saturday, just go retweet it, give me a follow, and then we're going to draw a random winner at the top of the 4 o'clock hour. I've had plenty of nice messages and, and people saying, you know, I'd love to go to the game, and, and here's why. And I appreciate that. And, you know, secretly that makes me kind of root for people like that to win, but I do this completely random. So it has no sway on who wins, but I do appreciate hearing the positive messages there. The KU offense puts up over 100 points in that game against Missouri, and they have been rolling all season offensively. If you look at Ken Palm, they're number three in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency. Now, that is still um, factoring in some preseason ratings. Um, Eventually, I think they get all the preseason stuff. It, It slowly gets filtered out like every game, every day, and eventually by the time we reach, I forget when it is, sometime in January, all the preseason is out because you. what it's trying to do is it's trying to avoid a system like the net where there is no preseason influence. And instead of, again, at the end of the day, at the end of the year, there is no preseason influence, but it's just a slow tapering off. Whereas in the net, you, you see the first rankings in the net and you're like, why is Yale ranked fourth, right? So it helps you avoid that. But they're third in offense there. If you go to Bart Torvik, they are first in adjusted offensive efficiency. And they're almost a full point better per possession than the second-place team, which is Gonzaga, about a point and a half better than the third-place team there, which is Purdue. It is no secret for me to say this is an offensive juggernaut. You can never really expect a team to maybe be first when there's so many teams in college basketball and there's so many variables. I did think this was going to be a good offensive team coming into the year, though. I mean, it just makes sense when you look at the personnel of this team. You say Remy Martin, he's a plus offensive player. David McCormick, when he's right, he is a plus offensive player. Elon Wilson, when he's right, plus offensive player. Christian Brown and Ochag Baji are looking like All-Americans right now. Of course, they are both plus offensive players. Dwan Harris, you know, he's not always going to be a plus offensive player in terms of the scoring like he was against Missouri when he had 13, but he's going to help your offense be a plus because of the way he moves the ball, passes the ball, gets assists, and so forth, and and gets steals as well, which is going to lead to transition for easy baskets. This KU offense is a juggernaut, and we've seen other elite offenses under Bill Self. 
one of the things that I find so interesting about this team, I mentioned all those guys that really can score it and are pluses offensively, and that didn't even me include me like going down the list of guys um, who might not even play game to game. But like when Bobby Pettiford's on the court, you know, it seems like he can kind of drive whenever he wants. Joe Yesifu, if you get him to the way he was playing at Drake, that would be a plus offensively. Right? Zach Clements can be a plus offensively because he can hit all those threes off the bench. Jalen coleman lands averaged 15 a game at Iowa State. He is a plus offensively. So there's just so many options. And the other thing is this team does so many things well that make it an elite offense. And I think that's what almost makes it it's not unique in that it's the only offense that Bill Self's ever had that does so many things well. He's had other offenses, but it is unique from some of the other really good Bill Self offenses. 2020, KU was a top 10 offense that year. They ranked eighth in Ken Palm adjusted offensive efficiency in 2020. Who knows? Maybe that would have ended up with a top five offense and even better because you're playing good teams in the NCAA tournament or could have gone the other way, you know, if you flunk out in the NCAA tournament. But either way, that was a top 10 offense for KU, and the reason why, they were really good at shooting two-point shots. When you have Yudo Kazabuki shooting 75% from the field, that's going to help. When you have Devon Dotson able to attack the rim at any moment, that's going to help. And they also got to the free throw line a lot because a lot of those two things, they gobbled up a good amount of offensive rebounds, as you'd imagine, with a team that had Yudo Kazabuki and David McCormick and some wings that are pretty good rebounders for being wings. That's how they got to being a really good offense. 2018, they were a top five offense. They got there because they were an elite shooting team, right? When you have Devontae Graham, Sfima Luke, LeGerald Vick, Malik Newman, that's how you're going to score. And when I say they were an elite shooting team, they were an elite shooting team from everywhere on the court. Mid-range, three-point shots, layups. And the layups, it's not necessarily that you know, they were good at contested layups or anything. It's just when you have a team that's shooting that well on jump shots and you have Yudoka in the middle sealing things off, you're going to open up big driving lanes for cuts, for easy passes, for just straight line drives where you're able to get an easier shot than you would have to begin with because of how great of spacing that team was. But they ended up just being great shooting everywhere. And also that team was one that didn't turn the ball over much. So that's how that team became elite. 2017, they shot over 40% on threes. Um, They actually shot better from three, I think, ever so slightly in 2017 than 2018, which is kind of funny. Not that, you know, I guess you think about it and you're like, well, that team also had Frank Mason to what 2018 had, but I think you just, because of the fact that Josh Jackson and Frank were also like great drivers, you might not think of that one being as good from three as the the one the next year, but the one the next year made more total threes. So I guess it kind of balanced out. Um, but the 2017 one, they were still elite shooting threes. They were top 40 in offensive rebounding rate because of the fact that you had Landon Lucas, who led the Big 12 in rebounding, and you had Josh Jackson, who was really good rebounding for kind of that small ball four, and you were also good at two-point shooting. Again, you open up the driving lanes. You have players like Josh Jackson and Frank Mason who can get uh, – into the lane. It wasn't as good as the 2018 team at two-point shooting, which I think a big part of that you attribute to the fact that 2018 had Yudoka Azubuki. Um, 2016 was a top 10 offense for KU because they just shot well from all levels. They shot well from two, they shot well from three, good from the free throw line. And then 2014 was a top 10 offense because of offensive rebounding and two-point shooting. Um, 
mainly because of guys like Joel Embiid, Andrew Wiggins. He had a lot of size, right? This is before KU's playing a small ball four. So you have Jamari Trailer coming in there as a four. Nowadays, he'd be like a small ball five, basically. And so forth, you can go. Like, you can go down the list. I'm, I'm not going to do this with every team. You can, you can look at all these Bill Self offenses that have been super good, and you could point to a couple things that made them a really good offense. But you don't always have the situation where you can say, no, they're just, they're, they're like doing great at, at pretty much everything. Because very rarely do you have an offense that's just good at everything. It's, it's more about what are your strengths? Can you emphasize them? Can you be, be elite at those things? And then like in, in the areas that are maybe your lower areas, can you just be solid there? All those teams I mentioned did that. Right? They might have had a, a tiny flaw in terms of it wasn't a category that was a strength or it wasn't a category that was elite. They did okay at them. Now, we have seen, as I mentioned, a couple self-teams um, that have been pretty foolproof. You know, 2010, they were elite at shooting threes. They were elite at shooting twos, offensive rebounding. They were solid uh, to good to getting to the free throw line, not turning it over but they were still kind of more toward the middle of the pack in those those last two. 2008, obviously, pretty perfect. Elite at shooting twos and threes. Got a ton of offensive rebounds. They didn't turn the ball over. 2008 and 2010 teams both finished second in adjusted offensive efficiency in Ken Palm. Um, and then 2011, you know, um, they weren't great with turnovers or getting to the free throw line or converting free throws, but they were really good at some other areas. But interestingly enough, KU has never had the number one offense in the Ken Palm era, which goes back to 2002. Technically, if you if you click through, you can find your way into like team histories, and it'll go back to 1997. Even if you go back to then, you don't end up with the number one offense in the country ever at KU. They've gotten to number two, which is crazy because you think of some of the great offenses with Roy Williams and with Bill Self. They've only been as high as number two. Now, if you're combining the eye test or you're saying, you know, when it's when it's time to go, like if we're playing your offense, I'm taking our offense over yours, like, sure, we can make that argument, right? It's the same idea of how, you know, in years past, like LeBron James maybe five years ago didn't win MVP, but everybody still knows he's the best player in the world, right? There's kind of a difference there. But that is pretty crazy that that's never happened. And I wonder if this one would be the one. The problem is because it, I mean, there's 358 teams. You can be number two in the country, and that can be as elite of elite as possible, and it just happens to be one team is slightly ahead of you in these rankings. So it doesn't really matter from that standpoint. But this team just does so many things so well. It's only nine games through, about a quarter of the way through the season. Haven't even started Big 12 play. You haven't played, like, the most difficult schedule in the world. So all that matters here. But as you're looking through the numbers of this team on offense, it is ridiculous. So far, KU is elite at shooting two-point shots. I mean, they are shooting almost 5% higher on two-point shots than they shot in 2020. And that was with a team with an elite point guard who was an All-American at getting to the rim and a center that shot 75% on twos. They're shooting almost 5% better than that team on twos right now. This team's good at shooting threes. This, uh, 
Actually, so far, is KU's best team is shooting threes since they moved back the three-point line. Now, it's not quite as good as, as some other Bill Self teams that have shot upwards of 38, 39, even 40%. It's about 37 and a half right now, but still good at shooting threes. And when you take into account the move back three-point line, you can make an argument that it would be one of KU's better three-point shooting teams. Ochag Baji, he's almost shooting 50% on a high number of threes right now. Right, Remy Martin's shooting pretty efficiently from the outside. Christian Brown shot okay from three, but you'd imagine that's going to go up. Same for a guy like Jalen Wilson. But you have a bunch of three-point shooters, Jalen Coleman-Land, Zach Clements, and so forth. You even have guys who aren't shooting well. It's probably going to even go up. Um, they don't turn the ball over. I mean, they are top 20 in the country in not turning the ball over. And if that wasn't enough, they also get a bunch of offensive rebounds, and they get to the free-throw line at a fine rate. Now, if you do want to say they do have a weakness, that they're not impenetrable, free throw shooting. For whatever reason, they have been a very bad free throw shooting team. And that cost them the game against Dayton. You go 9 of 20 from the free throw line against Dayton. That directly resulted in your one loss this season. Didn't shoot well at the free throw line against Missouri. You're in the 200s and where you rank in terms of free throw percentage. But all those other categories, this team is really good. And to boil that down, the fact that you don't turn the ball over and that you do get a bunch of offensive rebounds, you maximize possessions. You get extra shots. You avoid losing shots. So you are maximizing your possessions. And not only are you maximizing your possessions, you are almost as efficient as it comes in terms of what you do with your possessions or in terms of what you do once the shot is in the air, I should say. Like once the ball releases out of your hand, you are one of the most efficient teams, but you also are getting extra possessions and not giving up free possessions. It's unbelievable how good this offense has been so far. I really am interested to see how this continues into Big 12 play, not only because it's tougher competition in general, especially night in, night out, but you get not just a more consistent wide base of good competition. You're going to get some elite defenses. I mean, starts right at the top. Baylor has the number one defense in the country. Currently, though, if, if we're to look at this offense in comparison with other Kansas offenses, if we just, we'll just cut this off at the Bill Self era, so that'll give us back to the 2003-2004 uh, season. Here is where this offense would rank in certain categories. Effective field goal percentage, which is basically a combination of your two and, and three-point shooting. There's a formula for it. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a good way of, you know, like a two-point shot is obviously worth less than a three-point shot. So it's going to weight a three-point shot higher. Um, and then it all gets combined into, into one thing. By effective field goal percentage, if it finished the way it was, this would be the best Kansas offense in Bill Self's tenure. In fact, right now, it would be a whole point and a half percent higher than the 2011 team. And that 2011 team is Self's previous high. That team led the nation ineffective field goal percentage. If you go by turnover rate, so not turning the ball over on offense, this would be the best number in Bill Self's history. And not only that, their 15.6 turnover rate is currently a whole percent better than any other season. Offensive rebounding rate. This would be Self's fourth best offensive rebounding team. I mean, how many Bill Self teams are there? I'm trying to think. 18? Right, from 03 to now, 18, 19. And it's top four. 
not one of, right? This isn't one of the early Bell South teams. It's playing two bigs. This is a team that's playing Christian Brown primarily at the four, who's a wing. They're top four right now if it ended today in terms of Bill Self's best offensive rebounding teams. Two-point percentage. This would be the best two-point shooting team in Bill Self history. Three-point percentage. Okay, this is the funny one. They would be 10th. I mentioned they're shooting over 37% from three. That's a really good number. It would be 10th. There have been such good shooting teams in Bill Self's history. I, I don't know if we've appreciated that enough. Um, cause I'm not just talking like, obviously we appreciated it, you know, in the run with Devonte Graham and Frank Mason, but there have been a lot more besides that, that have been very efficient from three in terms of at least the, the percentage, maybe not the volume as much, but this team would be 10th. But funny enough, even though this would be the 10th best three point shooting team that Bill Self has had at Kansas, they're still top 40 in the country this year. And obviously it, it skews things with the three point line being further back. So all those things. Effective field goal percentage first, turnover rate first, two-point percentage first, offensive rebounding fourth, and then three-point percentage, which is further down for the best Bill Self teams at KU, is still top 40 in the country. This offense is so good. It is so good at so many things. There's not really a fatal flaw outside of the the free throw shooting. And even then, I'm not sure how much of a fatal flaw it's going to be because even if you have a bad free throw shooting game, I'm not counting on as bad of a free throw shooting game as the Dayton game. Right, Even though you haven't been a good free-throw shooting team, you're shooting well over 60%. You're almost to 70 You're closer to 70 than you are 60. In that game, you went 9 of 20. That's under 50. And I guess what does this all mean? Because that's, you know, it'd be one thing. Clearly, I could just sit here and say, oh, well, if you have one of the nation's best offense, of course you're going to be one of the nation's best teams, and you're going to be in discussion for a national title. Duh, right? If you're the best at something or you're one of the best at something, it's going to put you in contention. That's the duh part of it. But if you want to look at past comparisons of what that has meant for Bill Self at KU, Bill Self has had eight top 10 offenses by Ken Palm adjusted offensive efficiency in his career. Four of them have been in the top five. Now, if we look at the top five offenses to start, Those four teams, one won a national championship, another went to the Final Four, another went to the Elite Eight, and then 2010 was the team that lost in the second round, but that team was dominant all season long, right? And if you get by Northern Iowa, who knows how far that team goes? And you look at how open that bracket was. I think you would have played like a four or five seed and then a six seed and then a five seed just to get to the title game, right? The team was so good. But even then, 75% of those teams made it to the Elite Eight or further. And half of them made it to the Final Four or further. Then if you look at the other four top 10 offenses, they went to the Elite Eight twice, 2011 and 2016. In 2011, you probably should have gone even further. You had 2014, which you lost in the second round. But again, it was without Joel Embiid, which was a very large reason why you ended up as a top 10 offense. If you take out Joel Embiid all season long, that team wouldn't even be a data point here. And then 2020 was the other year there, which you didn't even get to play, but there's a real chance that team ends up being another positive data point as an Elite Eight, Final Four, national title winner or contender or whatever it is. I think there's a little rhyme to the reason here. We know Bill Self has done such a good job in his career with putting together defenses 
So if you're saying, well, a Bill Self team is going to have a great offense, obviously that's probably going to be a really good recipe for success. But it's also, I think, shows the importance of, I know this sounds stupid, but scoring in college basketball. Because last year would be the alternative to this. I think even more um, to the extreme. Because last year, KU was, over the last two months of the season, they didn't finish this way overall, but over the last two months of the season, before the USC game, they were literally the number one defense. If you just take that, that, that sample into account, they were the number one defense. And you got boat raced in the second round of the NCAA tournament because you couldn't score. Now, that, that offense was worse than this version of the KU defense. I don't mean to say it's a, a mirror or anything of this year's team. But I think you'd rather be an elite offense than an elite defense. And regardless, the fact that you're giving Bill Self an elite offense is an absolutely great place to start. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us next. That time on a Tuesday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson on KLWN, RCST. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us now on the show. Uh, KU puts up over 100 points in the game against Missouri. We've seen the offense really clicking all season long to this point. As I give you your first question, which is a difficult question, um, I'm going to make you kind of go back in your mind here. This is the best KU offense since when? Oh, I like that one. I might even be ready for that one. Um, I, I, I mean, look, I, I, I don't think you go back past 2019-20. I mean, I, I think that offense was pretty good, man. You had Dotson, who was, the, arguably the best at, at what he did in the country and certainly one of the fastest and could score against anybody in, in a number of ways. And then you had Doak, who was also automatic inside for, for any amount of points you wanted to give him as long as he got the ball around there and as long as you weren't making him shoot free throws, which he even improved at. Um, but beyond that, you had Christian Brown on that team, believe it or not. I think a lot of people forget he was on that team. You had Ochai Baji on that team, two guys that are now leading this team in scoring. They weren't doing this then, but they were on that team, and they were options. And uh, obviously you had Marcus Garrett, who could get his own buckets at times. You had Isaiah Moss, who – especially late in that season, really became a, a three-point assassin. And, and beyond all of those individual pieces, you know, you, you had a team that, that had incredible chemistry and, and just kind of looked like they knew each other inside and out. And, and it was second nature where this guy was going to be and that guy was going to be, and they got this guy these shots because those are his best and favorite and all that. And I, I think they were just a well-oiled machine. Um, so, I don't think you have to go back farther than that. If you were going to, I don't know that you have to go much farther then either because the 17-18 team with, with Devontae and Spee and Malik and Vic, and, you know, that was a ridiculously good offensive team. Um, Three-point records were falling left and right. And, and then, of course, the 16-17 team as well, which was my initial thought. Uh, when you asked the question, because you had those same guys, but also you had Frank Mason and you had Josh Jackson and, you know, some dynamic offensive weapons there too. So uh, what we're learning is over the last five or six seasons, there've been some pretty damn good offenses here. And this may be one of them, but I think, you know, nine games in, it's too early to say that's the case um, because they have to sustain it for, for the long haul in, in order to be kind of, 
included in that group, but they're efficient and they're led by two guys that are incredibly efficient. Um, and, and, uh, I, I think the issue for me, as far as putting them in any, any kind of premature category like that is beyond Ochai and, and Christian is the rest of it really that reliable just yet? You know, McCormick, sure, he's capable, but he's not consistent yet. Remy, not consistent yet. Um, maybe by design, maybe not, but but certainly, you know, not a guarantee that he's going to go out and get 15 a game or anything like that. And then, you know, at that point from there, we haven't seen Jalen Wilson get going yet. We, we haven't seen anything from Yusefu, uh, and then a bunch of freshmen too. So, um, you know, I, I think they've got a ways to go before they're, they're even anywhere close to those other teams that we just talked about. But, but it, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly easy, easy to call them a very good offense when you can start with what Ochai and, and Christian Brown have done lately. They've been phenomenal. Yeah, and I might be jumping the gun here, and, and obviously we haven't even got to conference play, and that's when the thick of the schedule will, will pick up. But it's just crazy to me if you look at, where they would rank among all of the Bill Self teams right now in effective field goal percentage, they'd be first in turnover rate. They would have their best turnover rate under Bill Self. Offensive rebounding. This would be their fourth best offensive rebounding team, amazingly, under Bill Self. Um, Two-point percentage would be their best. That team in 2020, despite having Devon Dotson and Yudoka Azubuki, who made everything around the rim, they're almost shooting 5% better on twos right now than that team. I don't know how. Uh, Three-point percentage. They're shooting a solid number, like 37.6%. That's actually, funny enough, only 10th in the Bill Self era just because he's had so many good three-point shooting teams. Right, um, right. But like out of comparison, 2020, they shot 34%. And it's obviously a further back three-point line. I don't know. I think you could make a real argument against some of these other offenses because in 2020, again, you're shooting better from two. You're shooting better from three. You're somehow getting more offensive rebounds. You're turning it over less. It's it's wild to me how good the offense is, and everything you just said about I don't know how many other guys you can rely on, I agree with, but I also, you could look at it from a glass-half-full perspective and say they're doing all this on offense right now, and Remy Martin, David McCormick haven't even gotten clicking yet, and again, like, they're shooting, I don't know, like you look at Christian Brown, he's shooting, I think, 34% from three. You could argue he's going to end up shooting 38 to 40% from three, uh, based on just kind of the guy we think he is. So, like, I, I almost look at the offense and say they're so good right now and there's still areas for them to improve that even when certain things, like maybe the two-point percentage won't stay this high. But when that drops off, if some of those other things improve, it balances out. I, I do think at the end of the day, this offense might end up having a, uh, I don't know, a discussion as one of the best offenses in the Bill Self era. Yeah, I mean, look, that's all very, very uh, well-reasoned, man. Um, you know, it's hard to argue with anything you said. I think the two biggest things that jump out to me about what you said that maybe are, are the biggest factors here is, is the turnover percentage, for sure. This team has done a great job of taking care of the ball, and that's a huge part of being an efficient and effective offense. And uh, and we've seen some of those best offenses even that, that you know, have just flat-out bucket getters and, and can put up points some of them were a little bit more careless with the ball. So that's, 
that's a big factor. And, and also the offensive rebounding part of this. I mean, I think that, you know, when you have uh, guys like Abadji and, and Christian Brown that can go get it off the rim and uh, you're not relying only on your big guys to do it, that's a big part of it too. So um, there, there's no doubt that, that a, a good case can be made. I think what's funny as I was listening to you kind of go through that, it's, it's almost – without probably intending to do it, you, you might have just stumbled into the bigger bigger picture argument of of the analytics versus the eye test thing, right? Because you can name all those stats and numbers and two-point percentage field goals and all that stuff, and I can counter and say, okay, well, I'm going to take the 2017-18 team and I'm going to put them out there, and you're going you're gonna to get this team, and you're going to put them out there, and which one are you going to take? And I think everybody would probably say the other one. I 100%. mean, maybe not, but... But but you know, and I, and I we probably don't have time. You'd have to devote a whole show to the analytics versus eye test argument, and maybe someday you will. We can only hope because I do think it's a good one. I think I mean I think, I, you know, for the longest time I was an eye test guy only, and and maybe that makes me old. Maybe that makes me whatever. But 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 I believe it. I mean I I do. But but I've definitely come around on analytics the last few five years. Maybe um, I, I think they have incredible value, and I think there's. There's a lot you can learn from them, and a lot you can sort of, uh, you know, not only uh, not only learn and, and and obviously analyze, but also, you know, you can you can build things around that. You can you can use those numbers to um, change the way you do things, and 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 to try to try to use those to, you know, put you in the best position to to succeed in this or that or this or that, and and you know, basically trying to cheat the test a little bit and just increasing your odds by using some of those numbers. At the end of the day, you could have the most efficient, analytically sound point guard in the country that's, that's testing off the charts on all these numbers and, and, and advanced metrics and things like that. Or you can have a guy like Devontae Graham, and I'm going to take Devontae Graham 100 times out of 100. I mean, that's just, that's just me. And some people are, are probably in that same boat, and others would probably favor the numbers and things like that. But, um, but I, I do think that's a fascinating argument, and I think it's one that's, that's happening nationally um, outside of college basketball even. I think it's happening in, in, a, in a lot of major league sports and, and, and professional sports. Um, I think it happens in football. I think, it's, I think it's a really interesting argument that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Soon. And I think eventually it will become what I kind of said a minute ago. Um, you know, it, it will probably be a, a pretty strong divide between the old guys and the young guys. You know, and, and that's if you're an eye test guy, you must be old, and if you're if you're an analytics heavy guy, you must be young. And that's certainly not the case. You know, I know both that, that go both ways, but uh, but it is it is probably trending that way. And again, I don't think that's going anywhere. So it's interesting you brought that up because I, I do think that that. This team, while incredibly effective and efficient so far, I don't know that their eye test is all that wild. You know, when you ask that very first question about which this this is the best offense since what, you know, my mind immediately started visualizing Josh Jackson attacking from the wing on that weave that they ran. Um, you know, Devontae Graham pulling up for three, Svee pulling up for three, ball movement, Malik against Duke. I mean, you know, those those things visually were, were running through my mind and 
And and obviously, good offense is about more than just putting the ball in the basket. But that's a big part of it. So um, it, it it's an interesting question. But you made a hell of a case for for this team being um, at least at least worthy of being mentioned and considered in that in that same group as those others. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think you have to combine some of those things. And and there's certain things that that can't be quantified. Like um, it, it's impossible to draw congruencies between who you played and how they played, how you play against sure. different schemes, stuff like that. Um, so I, I, it's good to bring up. I, I just think the fact that it, it fares so reasonably or, or fares so well in all these statistical categories is, is absolutely unbelievable. And, you know, I, I guess we'll wait and see because this hasn't been the toughest non-con that KU's had to play to this point. So um, who knows what will happen once you do get into tougher games and, and get into uh, tougher play from here on out. But uh, the offense certainly has has not been anything that needs to be questioned. I think we would both agree on that. And um, yeah, I, I think one thing that I've found very interesting is that um, Jalen Wilson's kind of struggled to get going offensively, and that's yet another thing that you could kind of tack on and say, "Man, if he gets going now, imagine what the offense is going to be." Um, but with Jalen's struggles right now, obviously there has only been one starting lineup so far for KU this year. I don't know. I, I I wouldn't have believed myself if I told myself um, even two weeks ago or at the beginning of the season that through this point of the year, we would have only seen one starting lineup, um, especially knowing that, that Jalen was going to be out the first three games and then you'd think he would have worked his way back into the starting lineup by now. Do you think if, you know, barring, I guess, injury or suspension, if, if that happens to any player, then obviously it changes the starting lineup. But barring any of that from happening, do you think at this point we're only going to see this one starting lineup all year? And would you have believed that if you would have said that before the season? Uh, man, that's a tough question too because I, you know, I think I think the answer may be yes that we that we that we will only see this one because I do think there was enough of a of a rough patch already in this first nine games where there was probably some real discussion about whether it should be changed. And and I'm referencing specifically David McCormick early on, especially, you know, down in Orlando and, and the games leading up to that. Um, you know, th- th- there's no question that they were, they were probably considering, you know, should we start Mitch? Should we start Jalen? Should we start um, Zach Clemens? You know, I mean, like I would imagine those conversations happen, and and you know, not not to disparage McCormick, but just because they were looking for something that clicked, they were looking for the answer, and it turns out that 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 you know that David or excuse me, Dayton loss wasn't the end of the world. We all knew it wasn't. Uh, they shouldn't have lost the game. They knew that. They know that still. But it. it, it it gave them an opportunity to respond to something, right? I mean, it's real easy to roll off 10, 12, 13 wins in a row and feel like everything's great because those wins and that, that, that record kind of hide everything. But when you lose a game like that uh, to a team you were favored to beat in a game you shouldn't have lost, in a, in, in a game that you made some pretty brutal mistakes to, to let it get away, um, you have to really look at yourself a lot harder and, and, and really be honest in your evaluation and your assessment of what's going on. And that game gave this team the opportunity to do that early, probably earlier than they would have liked. But, but you know, you can spin that to a positive. Um, and and they've, they've responded very well since then. I think they understand um, 
largely because of that game. They understand the importance of defense. They understand the importance of when you got a team down by double figures, you don't let them off the mat. You step on them and keep them down. And they're not perfect at that yet. And, and they may never be, but they, they certainly over the last couple of games, um, UTEP and Missouri, uh, they've shown that they're growing in that area. And, uh, and, and, and you know, even against St. John's, the game they ended up winning by 20, they let that one down to, uh, to, to three points in, in early in the second half and, and then responded with a phenomenal run from there to close that one out. But, um, but, but I think that, you know, I think that allowed them to, to learn more about who they are and, and, and learn about what they should prioritize and listen to Coach Self and all those things. And, and so because of that, I know I'm kind of dancing around it and getting, getting to your, your question here a little late, but, but because of that, I think that you've learned not only that your team's capable of responding and understanding how to play the right way and, and that, that kind of stuff, but you've also learned that this five, the group that will do it, and and so there's an incredible value in that, in my opinion, because, you know, is Dewan Harris the best player? No, he's not. He's terrific, but he's not the best player. He's not he's not the guy that you need this, this, and this from. There's a lot of holes in his game. There's a lot of things to like. Um, and you could do that almost with every player in that starting lineup, um, maybe outside of McCormick, I'm sorry, uh, Brown and Ochai, even though Self would sit here and tell you, a five minute answer about what those guys could do better. And he thinks they will and still can. So um, individually, they're not all perfect by any means, but I think collectively they've figured out how to, how to, how to position this team to, to play the right way. And, and they, as much as anybody on that roster learned, the biggest lessons from that that loss to Dayton, and so I think that that there's a lot of reason to believe it will stay this way, and 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 I think by keeping it that way and the continuity that comes with that, you do give Jalen Wilson more time to figure out what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. I mean, now instead of saying, "Hey, you may start some, and we may need you to figure out how that works," and and you may come off the bench some, and we need you to figure out how that works, and you know you're kind of in your own head right now, and all that, it just isn't clicking for you. So let's get going. You know, instead of putting that on him, you can go to Jalen any day of the week after any game, before any game, and say, "Here's the deal, man. You're our first guard off the bench. You're our number one sub for the backcourt, and you're you're going to be that guy. You're, you've got a chance to be sixth man of the year if you if you." pull it out and, and get going. And, and uh, maybe that allows him to focus more on that role and, and be a little more comfortable in it a little quicker. And if it does, maybe that helps him, you know, get going again. And, and as you mentioned a minute ago, if he gets going again to where he was mid last season, then, then I think as long as nothing else suffers as a result of that, then I think you could be having a real conversation about this team and its offensive uh, ranking and, and kind of where they fit because he, he brings so much to this team, or at least potentially does, um, that they're not getting right now. And, and if it ever gets going, and, and I, I do think it's an if. I don't think it's a given. I thought it was at one point, but I don't know that it is now. But if it does, and he's still got plenty of time, then yeah, that's a that's a a big time uh, development, and and I think would would really make this team even better because you don't need six, seven, eight starters. You know, you need five, and then you need your bench guys to to embrace their role, and you need them to execute those roles at a high level, and you need them to be passionate about those roles, and 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 do what exactly Mitch 
Lightfoot keeps talking about every time he talks about the bench. That's come in and either increase the lead or decrease the deficit. And whatever, you know, that's your job. It's, 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 it's not your job to go out there and, and be the star. It's not your job to go out there and, and you know, uh, build a 20-0 run that, that gets you off and, and running. It's your job to maintain. And, and so I think that as this team continues to move forward and trying to, trying to figure out how the pieces fit, because that is going to continue to be a work in progress. I think if you can clearly define those roles a little bit better, um, it will help and it will it will kind of expedite that that journey. And on top of that, I think the quickest way to do that is by saying, "Yeah, this is my five. These are my starters. This is the group I'm going to run with at the beginning of every game, and they're going to give me what they give me. And if we get out the big leads, then we'll roll from there. And if we don't, then we've got some options on the bench. But this is my five. So I don't know if that would have surprised me a ton um, three four weeks ago, like you asked. But, but I do think that's probably where I would where I'd put my chips right now. I, I don't I don't think he's interested in in tweaking the starting lineup unless there's something significant that were to happen that that would make him you know more or less force his hand and make him do so. Which is crazy because it was such a deep team and there were so many questions and now it looks to be pretty set and we had pretty much a, a set rotation against Missouri where it was. Really just seven guys playing, I guess eight if you count Jalen Coleman lands and all the, all these questions about all this rotation and, and how it was gonna work and, and who's gonna well, seems pretty simple at this point that uh it's almost been decided. I'm I'm sure there can still be change and stuff. It's still early. Oh yeah. Season, but oh, yeah. yeah, don't forget about Bobby Pettiford. I mean, he's gonna play. When he's back, yeah. he's gonna play. And uh and, and that's okay, you know. But um but but it is hard, man. It's hard to have depth and and I mean you remember in the summer all the all the Joe Yosefu truthers out there that all expected him to start, he couldn't start for this team right now, even if you begged him to. And that's not a knock on him. He's just not there yet. A lot of it is is transitioning to this level. A lot of it is, is learning Bill Self. A lot of it is learning your teammates. And, and also, Joe's still young. Like, I, I know that he's, you know, he had a heck of a finish last year, but the year before that, injured. Played nine games. And last year, prior to that last nine or ten games of the season, you know, he was sort of a ho-hum player. So he's still got his breakout days ahead of him. And, uh, and, and there's no reason to be down on him or anything like that right now. He just – he's not a starter. And maybe he will be in two years, but he's not right now. And so, you know, there were a lot of guys that were saying he needs to start, and there were a lot of guys that were saying Christian Brown doesn't. And – Boy, that couldn't have looked more wrong right now. So, yeah. um, you know, so be it. But, 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 that, yeah, that's that's sort of the the hazard of of trying to figure out a team with ten new faces. It's it's it. You, you know, you're going to miss on some of those things. But the important part, obviously, is that the coaches don't miss, and they haven't. They put they've got a great starting five, and they've got the makings of a great bench. Just needs a little more time to kind of settle into that, and and everybody understand this is what we are moving forward. And once they do that, I think it'll time up very nicely with the start of Big Twelve play, and it better because Big Twelve play is going to be a monster. There are some really good teams in this conference, and they're going to be no nights off. I know that's a cliche, but it's going to be absolutely true. Maybe more this year than ever. That 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 is just going to be such a such an absolute eighteen game gauntlet. And oh, by the way, you get to throw. 
Kentucky in there for a break. What a what a what a schedule! If it hasn't been the best non-con schedule so far, and I don't think it's been bad, but you mentioned you know it, it hasn't quite been what people thought it might be. Um, but but if it hasn't been a, a, a great non-con, the the conference schedule that awaits is going to more than even that out. It's going to be a bear. Yeah, literally with the Baylor Bears sitting at number one on the AP poll. I don't know if you well did that done. on purpose. Well done. No, I didn't, but I I'll steal that later. <laughs> there we go. All right, he is uh, Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, where you can check out all of his great work. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Yeah, man, thanks. Enjoyed this one. I enjoy them all, Derek, but this one was fun. I I uh we we, we dove into Oh, so things, you didn't so. enjoy last week. Did I not? I don't know. I'm asking you. Oh, see, I don't even remember it. So, um, but we must have talked a little about Missouri. So I surely did. I mean, come on, right? That that, that I don't I don't know. The, that was the same day as the UTEP game. Maybe we weren't looking mm. ahead. I don't know. Can we? We can do whatever we want, though. We can look That's right. ahead. That's right. Doesn't matter. Look whatever we want. We can talk. Uh, start previewing the Iowa State game if we want. That's well. I mean, let's do it. Nah, I don't, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. But yeah, I enjoy them all. But this was fun, and and like I told you on a a handful of other occasions, don't be surprised if you see and hear some of these exact words show up in my writing because I love when you spark my brain to think of good ideas, and then I steal them as if they're my own and put them in print, and then I reap the praise, and I don't even remember your name after that. I love it. I love it. That's what I'm here for. I'm a, I'm an idea sparker. That is my job. He's Matt Tate. There you go. Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, thanks again, man. All right, Derek. Thanks. Take care. You too. All right, that was Matt Tate joining us here every Tuesday on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017-1320-KLWN-KLWN.com in the KLWN app. One hour down, two to go. We're going to talk with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. We've also got a college football whip around coming at you. we got a KU football segment coming up. They're just landing all sorts of transfers. And coming up at the top of the 4 o'clock hours, so coming up next at 4.05, right after Fox News, I'm going to pick a winner. I put out on Twitter, so you got your last chance to do it right now. At D Johnson Radio is my handle on Twitter. Go. You might have to scroll down because I've tweeted a couple times since then. There is a KU basketball ticket giveaway. I have a pair of tickets, so two tickets to give away to the KU game on Saturday against Stephen F. Austin. Retweet it. Give me a follow. I'm going to pick a random winner at 4.05. If you get in late, I'm sorry. I can't help you. So get ready for that. But one hour down, two to go. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. About 20 till 5, this is RCST. Derek Johnson here on KLWN. Joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. The Heisman occurred on Saturday, and... Jordan Davis, who was, I would argue, the most, I don't know, impactful or most important player, I guess, on the Georgia defense, huge defensive tackle on the number one defense in the country, who was the number one team for literally every game until the final game and still the top three team in the country. He finished ninth in the Heisman race, which I was a little surprised of. I thought he would finish higher, especially because of the fact that he was behind Matt Corral, who Matt Corral, awesome, had a great season, hit 20 passing touchdowns, and Jordan Davis finished behind him. Um, so what do you think was more surprising, Kevin? Jordan Davis finishing ninth, and I don't necessarily want to make this a Jordan Davis segment. I just thought this was interesting in relation to how defensive players continue to be slighted in the Heisman. Uh, so more surprising, Jordan Davis finishing ninth in the Heisman, or that Bryce Young, not that he won the award, but that Bryce Young earned more voting points than second through fifth combined. 
You know, I, I think both are. I, I think the bigger surprise is Bryce Young because I feel like it was hard to watch Alabama this year and come away 100% certain that Bryce Young was even Alabama's best player. Mm-hmm. You know, and I realize he, he had some clutch moments. He had, you know, what you would consider to be, you know, the the old misnomer, the, the Heisman moments. Uh, but at the same time, it, it certainly wasn't a case to me where anybody really ran away from it. And, and you know, you know, I'm a, a Will Anderson guy. That would have been my pick, you know, his, his teammate and pass rusher. Uh, but even with Will Anderson, I, I could see where people would would vote elsewhere. I, I didn't feel like Will Anderson necessarily should have run away with it. And so for Young's margin to be what it is, uh, I think that was the biggest surprise to me. Davis, uh, I think, was a little more understandable if incorrect <laughs> in that I think people really have a tough time putting an impact to specific players when that impact isn't an individual stat. You know, when when you can't look at it and say, okay, this guy, you know, Indomitian Sue, everybody likes to bring up, and Indomitian Sue had, you know, the 20-plus tackles for loss, and, you know, you you could see the impact that he was having, and yet he also had, the numbers where you said, my gosh, you know, a defensive tackle is doing this. And you could look at the numbers. Orlando Pace, when he was a Heisman Trophy candidate, you know, they kind of came up with that whole pancakes thing. And not saying that they invented the term, but they really were the first to use it as a case for somebody to, you know, to become a, a major awards candidate. It was a stat that you could throw out there, despite the fact that he was an offensive tackle. And so you could look at it and be like, well, yes, his teammate Eddie George has run for this many yards. Orlando Pace is part of that, but he also has 70-some pancakes or whatever it was. I think the issue with Jordan Davis is you look at the traditional counting stats and they aren't there. And so we aren't necessarily equipped as, you know, a voting base or the voting base is not necessarily equipped. I shouldn't put myself in that because I don't have a vote. But it's not it's not necessarily something where there's people aren't going to pro football focus circling somebody's grade and being like, well, Jordan Davis should win the Heisman because his grade is a 90 or whatever else. They still need that thing that they can look at that tells them, okay, this guy specifically is the reason for Georgia's defense to succeed. He didn't have double-digit tackles for loss. He didn't have the sacks and things like that. And so because of that, it's almost a little bit of a surprise that he was a top-10 guy I think that it was it was great that he was. He probably should have been higher, you know, from an impact standpoint. But when voters went to pick their candidates, I think it was really tough for them to justify somebody who didn't have the counting numbers that allowed them to make that case. Yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know. I, I have three big gripes with, the, no, I have four big gripes with the Heisman. These are things that if I was, I guess, commissioner of the Heisman or, or whatever, that I would change. 
Um, one of them was I, I would just like to see the top five candidates invited to New York. You know, why not? Just make it a set number every year instead of changing it. Um, the number two thing, I would like to see ballots increase to five deep. I mean, like in uh, the MLB, like MVP voting, you go like 10 deep. Why can it not be five deep on, on the ballot? Um, I think sure. it will create an even, I don't know, uh, an even better voting system, right, if, if you're able to uh, kind of go at it that way. Um, the third thing was something you mentioned, which um, the Heisman moments thing, because we get to a point where, like, it's so discussed about, well, what's his Heisman moment that because of the fact that Bryce Young had a better quote-unquote Heisman moment than Will Anderson, we just discount the body of work, as you were mentioning, where Will Anderson was the best player on Alabama for I guess you could even say, if you want to say Bryce Young was the best player in that one game, Will Anderson was the best player in the other 12 of 13 games, but because he didn't have the Heisman moment and Bryce Young did, it's like, oh, well, he has to get it. And then the last one is just the idea of, I mentioned this in the last segment, but like with the NFL, when it's the MVP award, it is in the name. It is the most valuable. So if you want to vote a quarterback every year, I'm cool with that because the quarterback is the most valuable position. But with college football in the Heisman, the, the name of the award, they literally say it goes to the best player in college football. It's not the most valuable player in college football. It's the best player in college football. And I would just like to see that be emphasized a little bit more because the fact is that, you know, even even though Bryce Young won the award, and, and I agree with you, I, I think I would have had Will Anderson ahead. I might have had Aiden Hutchinson ahead. But regardless, like, I, I still think he's a worthy winner. He's a really good player. To me, where the issue comes in even more is that you had guys like Kenny Pickett and C.J. Stroud finish ahead of Will Anderson, that you had guys like Matt Corral, who, again, really good quarterback, first-round draft prospect, but he had 20 passing touchdowns, finish ahead of guys like Jordan Davis. It just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you agree with me on any of, of my rules or, or possibilities, but uh, you can take it wherever you want. Yeah, I think the, a couple of those things. I, I think the Heisman actually goes the most outstanding player, if I remember the definition. Um, and, and there's been a lot of debate about what that actually means. And, and I think you brought up a really good point as far as that goes, because some people do pick the MVP. And it, it was interesting because I did talk to a couple Heisman Trophy voters who had Aiden Hutchinson ahead of Will Anderson, and that was a big part of their case, was they said, if you take Will Anderson off of Alabama, Alabama's probably still going to be pretty good. And if you take Aiden Hutchinson off of Michigan, you know, maybe Michigan loses, you know, three or four more games. And I don't know, you know, that it's quite that much value. But, I mean, that was the case that they made for why Hutchinson, despite having, you know, fewer counting numbers, less production, et cetera, than Will Anderson, they were basically saying, well, Bama without Will Anderson, there'd be, you know, somebody else there, of course. <laughs> Whereas, you know, with Aiden Hutchinson, maybe the drop-off would be a little more significant. And there are other people who do pick the best player. And so you have that sort of meshing of definitions, which doesn't really help anybody if everybody's picking off of different, you know, ideas, you know, is this guy the MVP? Is he the best? You know, those are two very different things. And the other thing that I liked that you said was number two, where I do think that they should have more votes, whether it's up to five, whether it's up to 10, because as it is right now, you pick three guys and everybody else is just left off. So you could feel like, okay, Will Anderson and Aiden Hutchinson are 
step for step with each other. But if you pick Aiden Hutchinson three, there's no Will Anderson at number four, even if you felt like there was that really thin margin there and vice versa. And, and, you know, you saw that, I think, when you looked at, you know, a guy like, uh, like Kenneth Walker, you know, he probably had a better Heisman case, I feel like, than C.J. Stroud. But C.J. Stroud was probably a guy with more volatility. And by that, I mean he probably was a guy that people, more people felt belonged in the top three than Kenneth Walker. But if you made that ballot four and five picks, I would almost guarantee that Kenneth Walker would appear on more ballots than C.J. Stroud because there are going to be some people, myself included probably, who would have left C.J. Stroud off of their top five, whereas I feel like when you stretch it out to five, Walker has a much better chance of being in that group. And so I do think that putting it, stretching out the votes, having more more candidates there, I, I do think it's merited because you're picking in college football. It's not like basketball where you have five guys on the court and their jobs are generally pretty much the same, right? I mean, yes, a big man's game is different than a point guard's game, but it's somewhat easy to see, okay, this guy has more impact than this guy, you know, so on and so forth. Whereas in football, you know, so many of the jobs aren't, aren't even in the, the same galaxy. You know, a left tackle has nothing in common with a wide receiver. And so because of that, two and the different positions and their jobs, you know, one side you're blocking somebody on the other side, you're trying to get off blocks and make tackles. I think a, a bigger ballot would be better too, because you're trying to sort of reconcile all these different guys who do different things within the game of football and, and come up with sort of a catch all list of the best players in the sport. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24 seven sports. I, I do want to ask you before we get to some college basketball, uh, KU has added a handful of commits from transfers, high school guys. They got a quarterback yesterday, added another this morning, Eric Gilliard. Uh, what sticks out to you about some of the latest uh, kids they've hauled in? Well, I, I'm going to tell you, you something that you know is not necessarily out there yet um, in, in terms of, and I can't be very specific with it, but one of the things that I think is really going to be is really going to bear watching Derek that hasn't really played out just yet is keep an eye on Kansas's walk-on class. And I know that sounds really weird. And you're saying, you know, walk-on, like, why would that, why would that even matter? Well, Kansas is not taking very many scholarship high school guys in this class. It's a smaller class, just about everybody across the country uh, with the exception of, it seems like the Texas schools like Texas and Texas A&M are taking smaller classes because of the COVID eligibility and how that messed with the numbers and, and all of those different things. So Kansas isn't, you know, Kansas is expected, I think, to sign, you know, eight guys tomorrow uh, who are going to be scholarship guys. I think two junior college guys, six high school guys. Their class is not going to get much bigger than that, Derek, if it gets bigger at all. You know, it may be 10, maybe 11 if it even gets to that point, they're going to have, you know, maybe a few more transfers added to the guys that they currently have. But the reason I bring up the walk-ons is in a normal 25 man recruiting class for both Kansas and Kansas state. And Kansas state is also going to take 
you know, 10-ish type guys. It's going to be a smaller class for K-State, too. There are guys within the state who would typically be scholarship players and potentially even impact scholarship players that each program is probably going to get in as preferred walk-ons. They may wind up getting blue shirts, which is when you come in with the idea you're a walk-on for a year or two, then you get a scholarship later on. They may come in, you know, as as gray shirts even, you know, to try and even out the numbers. But I think the thing that really bears watching and is going to stick out is there are going to be multiple guys who sign with Kansas or or who pick Kansas as preferred walk-on guys that in any normal year would be scholarship guys at the University of Kansas. And and so you need to really keep an eye on that walk-on group because if KU is only giving out eight or ten scholarships to this recruiting class, you're going to see – you know, guys 11 through 15 are, are going to be walk-ons this year. And so I do think that that's something that bears watching because when you look at some of the names that, that Kansas is potentially in on, you know, some offensive linemen, potentially some pass rushers and guys like that, it would not surprise me at all if we're talking, you know, two or three years from now and some of these guys that technically come in as walk-ons aren't in the rotation or or even starting games for Kansas just based on the fact that these are scholarship caliber guys who are just falling through the cracks because of that whole COVID eligibility thing. It'll definitely be very interesting to watch, and uh, we'll get to talk with Lance Leipold tomorrow. So I do want to switch to some college basketball, though. Um, I was talking a lot about how great this KU offense has been so far this season. Obviously, small sample size. Uh, You haven't played a lot of your best opponents, especially in the Big 12, and when you look at some of the best defenses, like the best defense in the country with Baylor. Uh, but does Kansas right now have a real case for the best offense in the country in your eyes? Sorry, you kind of broke up there for the last part. Yeah. Uh, do you think Kansas has a case as the best offense in the country? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, even if it's not quite there in practice, I think that Kansas has the potential to be the best offense in the country. You know, when you look at the different ways that that Kansas can hurt you, and we're starting to see, you know, a little bit more from David McCormick, the the jump that Mitch Lightfoot has made, you know, I don't know that it really gets uh, enough pub because we've seen so much of Mitch Lightfoot over the last few years. But he has become a really efficient offensive player, and – with him, you know, standing there as that backup that, uh, that that you're able to bring in and potentially have as a role guy and do different things with, with the way that Kansas is scoring off the wings when you look at Ochai Abaji and Christian Brown with with what we know Remy Martin is capable of and he's still, you know, kind of finding his footing and his, his fit within this offense. And then even against, you know, Missouri, DeWan Harris went out and, and scored. And I think that that's something that he's capable of doing. And we saw it at the end of last year. And then you're talking about the depth that they bring with what Joseph Yesifu is capable of. You know, Jalen Coleman lands. I don't, I'm not sure a lot of people realize this. He was a top 10 returning scorer in the Big 12 because he put up almost 15 a game last year for Iowa State. And you're talking about him, what, as your eight guy, your nine guy, maybe ten guy, depending on the night? 
And so I do think that Kansas has a variety of ways to score. They've got a number of guys who can score on a given night. And once all the pieces kind of get used to their roles and used to how they, it all fits together, I think the offense could even take another step forward in that they have all the different ways to attack you from a shooting, scoring, driving, posting standpoint, whereas a lot of teams are, are maybe built you know, around one or two things. And, and it's kind of interesting because I think we saw – the opposite of that in that Baylor-Villanova game where Villanova is a team that doesn't really have a lot of shot creation, doesn't have maybe the variety. They didn't have the, the Jeremiah Robinson Earl that they could dump it down to, to you know to get a couple points if they needed to do that. And you saw Baylor really take advantage of the fact that Villanova didn't have multiple ways to score. And so I do think that Kansas has, you know, what could be the nation's best offense right now, but certainly looks like it could be one of the nation's best offenses as the season goes on. Uh, real quick, what do you think is more likely, Baylor repeating as a national champion or Iowa State finishing in the top 10 in the country and top three in the Big 12? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think Baylor is more likely. I don't think either is especially likely, though. You know, Baylor scares me with the, the shooting struggles that that team has had, you know, and I, I think that Baylor defends really well, but at some point, you know, if Baylor gets into a game where somebody does make shots and takes care of the ball, can, can the bears, you know, it, can they keep up? And, and I think that's a very real question for a team that has struggled at times to score it in the half court at this point. But I think Baylor is probably more likely to do that. I do think Iowa State is so improved under Otzelberger, and Tyrese Hunter is such a good point guard. And and when you look at, at that team, you know I, I think there's a, a very real chance that it's a top half of the Big Twelve team. But even then, that could be that could be kind of tough because you look at how good Oklahoma has been at, at different points this year. You expect Texas to kind of put things together at some point. You know, Dylan Dusu is is playing tonight for Texas, so that's a big piece for Texas back that the Longhorns haven't had access to yet this year. And then when you look at Kansas and Baylor, I think it's really tough to, to kind of see that scenario where Iowa State slides into the top three with how stacked the Big 12 looks this year. He's Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 24-7 Sports. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always, man, and have a good rest of your week. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty joining us on a Tuesday here. This is RCST on KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Five o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, the KLWN app. Um, I think we have Hawk Talk coming at you tonight, so stick around for that after the show. KU football just continues to land transfers. They... Um, got a couple over, I think, last week and last weekend with Savion Morrison and Kaylon Gervin. They added two more yesterday, and I was just sitting there. I was like, 
really? You're only going to bring on four transfers? And then Eric Gilliard from UCF is making his announcement. We're all just sitting here telling Lance Leipold like we're Adam Driver in Star Wars playing Kylo Ren. And we're just like, keep them coming, man. And he has delivered another one. Eric Gilliard from UCF committing to KU this morning. So that makes five transfers now that KU has landed into the program. And all of them coming within the last week. Now, uh, National Signing Day is tomorrow. I don't know if that has the same impact um, with the transfer portal. I don't think it does. There's not like a deadline with it. But... I think a big reason you're seeing a, a rash of transfers right now before National Signing Day, um, a couple reasons. I mean, from KU's perspective, you obviously want to get it wrapped up as soon as possible before other schools start getting involved. Other schools might be preparing for bowl games. Like, you go out there and, and get as many of these transfers as you can. And I, I think from both a KU and, and the players coming in perspective, you would like to, well, from KU's perspective, you want to know what you still need or, or what you still have scholarship-wise to give out in your recruiting class, right? So you might have a couple kids who are high school kids who, you know, they're they're kind of a conditional take. Like, that happens a lot in recruiting where it's, you know, we'll take you on, we'll give you a scholarship, but it's it's on the condition that this guy does not take the, the scholarship because otherwise we don't have the scholarship opening for you. So you want that to be sorted out before National Signing Day. And from the player perspective, right, like if, if you're one of these transfers, you want to get on board with a scholarship before they say, okay, well, we'll just give it to a high school kid if you're going to make it take a while. And you're like, well, no, I want to end up at Kansas. So uh, that would be my guess as to why now it's happening. Um, but who knows? It could just be, you know, coincidence or just whatever time you think. But uh, tomorrow is National Signing Day, so uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing more freshman commits and, and maybe some more transfers down the road who knows maybe I haven't even seen any um that have occurred already uh but Lance Leipold's going to speak with the media tomorrow so we'll carry that for you on Rock Chalk Sports Talk tomorrow but this is a big deal five guys coming in and all of these players coming from pretty big schools right I mean you're, you're talking about three guys coming from Big Ten schools you're talking about another guy from UCF Big 12 school they got a Big 12 player, and um, Buffalo would be the other one, and, and the one you got from Buffalo, which would make you think, okay, that's going to be maybe the most developmental player because he has to make the adjustment from Buffalo to, to playing here, although keep in mind, like some of KU's better players this year were at Buffalo last year, but those were guys who were, you know, good at Buffalo, although I guess Rich Miller was kind of a backup last year. Buffalo ended up coming over, and he was KU's best linebacker this year, so uh, the fact that Buffalo has been a better program over the last handful of years than Kansas has, maybe that makes that transition a little bit easier. But here's all the guys they're getting. So I mentioned the the first two that they got last weekend. We've talked about them a little bit. Savion Morrison, who is the running back from Nebraska, he comes in. I believe he has uh, three more years of eligibility. He was a 72.1 grade on Pro Football Focus, and he graded really well specifically as a runner. He had a 78.1 grade as a runner. And then you had uh, Kalon Gervin, who was a corner at Michigan State. I believe he'll be in his final season, so you'll get one year of him. He was 
not the highest graded guy. He's actually never graded above a 64 by Pro Football Focus. So not the best grades there, but he at least adds experience into the secondary. He gives you something there. And even though never being graded above a 64 isn't great overall nationally, it's better than what KU has in, in certain areas. So those were the guys you brought on from over the weekend coming from Big Ten schools in Nebraska and Michigan State and to a point where you know you don't have to worry about how are they going to transition to being in a Power 5 university. That's all great. The ones you've added over these past couple days I think could have a really big impact. Now, again, like I said, I don't know. We'll start here. Nolan Gorchika. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's the kid from Buffalo. Like I said, he might be more of like a long-term player. But you're bringing in a guy who was a former three-star recruit in Nolan Gorchika, a six foot six, two hundred and eighty-nine pound offensive tackle. So lots of size. I mean that six six, two eighty-nine. That's for a, a guy who's going to be a, I believe, redshirt freshman this next year because he only appeared in four games for Buffalo. So I believe that means he could have redshirted. Which, if that makes him a redshirt freshman um, this next year, meaning you would get four years of him. At KU. So if you're talking about a redshirt freshman, 6'6", 290, you put him into the program with Matt Gildersleeve, in you know two years he might be 6'6", 310, right? And, and that's very much power five size on your offensive line. He played, I think, mostly guard for Buffalo. It was limited snaps. It was just 21 snaps because it was just those four games. So limited time to take anything away from a pro football focus grade. But I'd imagine he could play guard or tackle when he has that size. Um wouldn't imagine he'd be a guy that comes in and plays right away. Like I said, he was a guy who didn't really play much at Buffalo, but we did see that with with Rich Miller. Trevor Wilson was kind of a rotational receiver. He was one of the starting receivers for a while for KU and then kind of was more of a rotational receiver near the end. But, I mean, clearly the fact that Leipold and his staff would have recruited him to Buffalo to begin with and have the confidence to bring him over to Kansas means they think he's got a high ceiling. And, Definitely, like I said, he's got the size to be a legit power five tackle. So that would be a, a nice win for KU. And the fact that he still has four years left of play, it's like you are basically just bringing in a high school recruit, except you didn't have to spend the year of redshirting him. Somebody else did that for you, which was very nice for this staff. Okay, the other two guys are the guys that I think might have the biggest impact on this program that they were able to get commitments from, from the transfer portal. Craig Young who comes from Ohio State. Craig Young is a six foot three, 223-pound linebacker-safety combo. He came into Ohio State as a three-star recruit. Um, he was a redshirt sophomore, I believe, this past season. Had 15 tackles, had a pick six, a couple pass deflections, played in all 12 games for Ohio State. So that means with KU, I believe that would make him a redshirt junior, which would give him two years left of play starting in 2022. So this would basically be like the equivalent of bringing on a junior college guy, but here's the exception. Instead of bringing on a junior college guy where, you know, you might have to worry how he transitions because some guys are in junior college because of the fact that they couldn't cut it grades wide or because they, you know, just couldn't really handle the power five riggers or something or, you know, something off the field happened. That's the difference here. You don't have to worry about that risk. This guy was making it at another Power 5 university. So you don't have to worry about the off-the-field risk necessarily from that same standpoint of what you're taking on with the JUCO guy where, um, you know, are you going to make grades or whatnot. Um, but with Craig Young, you get those two years, and you get a guy who can play linebacker or safety. Now, I don't know what the idea for, for KU to use him as, 
But if you look at his pro football focus grade, I think it might give you an idea. He graded out as a 72 on pro football focus overall. Again, played limited snaps, did play in all 12 games, but didn't play overly ton. That said, that's a solid pro football focus grade. and would be really good for the KU defense, a defense that struggled mightily all of last season. His best plays, his best graded snaps came in run defense and pass coverage. But his one issue, he graded out as just a 50 tackler. KU struggled tackling the fo- tackling last season. And obviously, if you're a linebacker, you have to be able to tackle. But the fact that he was good in pass coverage makes me think, sounds like you would be more of a safety. Ricky Thomas graduates for KU. Who's going to be the safety next to Kenny Logan? I would just think that Craig Young would be a guy you would circle for that position. The size at six foot three makes you think linebacker, but the fact that he did grade out in the 70s in coverage specifically and that he is just a 50s tackler does make me think he could be that safety next to Kenny Logan. But because of the fact that you have versatility there with a safety linebacker hybrid, maybe he's a guy who on, you know, running downs or on first and second down, he's playing safety. And then on third down or on passing downs, he moves up to linebacker to where at that point he is a coverage linebacker or a run safety. And having versatility is never a bad thing. And he's a guy that I think can have a big impact for KU as soon as this year, and then you get two years out of him, which is great. Now, I mentioned Eric Gilliard. He was the latest commit to KU. Five foot 228-pound linebacker who was a second-year junior in 2021 due to the COVID rules. Um, technically, he could have been considered a senior with one extra year if he wanted it. So now he'll just be whatever you want to call it, a second-year senior, super senior. This will just be his last year at KU. He was a former three-star recruit, but that's not necessarily telling. The thing is with with recruiting rankings, like I don't know how many it is, but um, it, it's not a set number every year. It's just based on grade. Let's say there's 30 or 45 stars, and then there might be like 100, 200, four stars, and then the range of three stars is incredible. Like you might be looking at like player 300 or 400 all the way down to like 2000. Like for instance, Nolan Gorchika was like ranked in the top 2000. Eric Gilliard was in the top 500. They were both three-star recruits. So there's a, a wide a variety, but Eric Gilliard was closer to being a four-star than he was a two-star, I guess, if, if that would be the way to putting it. Um, He spent the last four years at UCF, who obviously has been a very successful team. Even this year, when they had more of a down year to their program standards, they went eight and four, you know, and he's had a lot of success, right? Didn't have the best pro football focus grades for his career, though. And as I was looking at this, if you just look at the the base numbers of how he did overall, you might walk away and go, because... This kid was being made a big deal about in the transfer portal because of the fact that he has experience. He has all these total stats, right? Like racked up so many total tackles and so forth. But you look at the pro football focus grade and you see he only graded as a 59 this past season out of 100. Um, In his four seasons with UCF, he's never eclipsed a grade of 60 overall or higher. That scares you a little bit. You're like, well, how good is this guy? I think you have to have trust in how the the staff is going to use him, and that is how he becomes an impactful level player for KU. Because if he's being used as a full three-down backer, I don't know how much value you're going to get out of him. I almost view Eric Gilliard like Nick Bolton for the Chiefs, 
Nick Bolton, really good against the run, really good tackler, but you got to sub him out on passing situations because he's just not good in coverage. Eric Gilliard was graded as a 78 tackling as a sophomore. That's a good number. 81 as a junior, really good number. 76 last season at UCF. So he's got really good tackling grades his last three years at UCF. His coverage grades, though, are what tanked the overall grade. That's how all those grades ended up at 60 or below. UCF, being a a group of five school, they might not have as much depth as a power five school. And KU is obviously working on that to, to get to those same levels of other schools, and I think they're headed in the right direction. But you would just think that if you recruit right and you bring on some more transfers and so forth, that you would be, like, for instance, I mentioned Craig Young. Maybe you play Craig Young as a safety on first and second down, and then on a third down that's a passing down, you move Craig Young to kind of that coverage linebacker spot. And when that happens, the linebacker he's replacing is Eric Gilliard because Eric Gilliard's in there for first and second down stopping the run, but on a obvious passing situation or on a third down and medium or third down and long, you want the pass coverage in there, so you take Gilliard out, bring Craig Young in. Those versatile pieces, I think, allow you to do this. And that is what I mean when you have to have faith in how the staff will use him. Because of the fact that he had three years under a 50 coverage grade, he had one year with an under 30 on his coverage grade. Those are really bad numbers. This past year, he did have his best coverage grade, so I guess he is trending in the right direction. Maybe it'll get a little better, but it was still just a 53. So again, if KU uses him on first and second down as a linebacker to stop the run, takes him out for sub-packages on passing downs, they've got something here. And that is something that's so important not just getting good players, but knowing how to properly use them. Now, I'm not saying it's a guarantee they use him that way. Maybe they will use him like a three-down linebacker. But I do trust this staff to make the right decisions there. And I think bringing on Craig Young and Eric Gilliard can have a big impact because your linebacker position specifically for KU really struggled last year. Your tackling really struggled last year. And with Eric Gilliard, he's a guy who can really help shore up the tackling. He can help shore up the linebacker position. Craig Young can help shore up linebacker position with added depth and versatility when you bring him on for third down and pass coverage or whatnot. These are things that the KU needed and and became apparent this past season that the current unit wasn't good enough at the linebacker spot. And this is what's cool about this handful of transfers coming on you know you kind of wonder I I mentioned the pro football focus grades and and maybe for to some level you know that's just kind of over your head um because you you just don't have a comparison for it right well here's here's a good way of looking at it so I mentioned Savion Morrison had a 72.1 grade that would rank second on KU for running backs so if we just look at their specific position where they're coming into where they would rank at KU Devin Neal had a higher grade than Savion Morrison. You were expecting Savion Morrison. If you're bringing in a transfer running back, I mean, he also has like, you know, three years, I think, left for KU. So it's not just about a one-year thing. But you obviously want him to have an impact on the team as much as he can. Well, in theory, by pro football focus grade, he would be their second-best running back. And we know the number two running back is going to get plenty of time, especially in an offense that likes to run the football a lot, especially for an offense that had 
um, I guess, got thinned out at the end of the season at the running back position when you had injuries to all these guys, and you don't want that to happen again, right? Like, Tory Lachlan goes down. Daniel Highshaw, we never see him all year long. Devin Neal misses the last game and a half. Now you're down to Amori Pesic-Hickson and out-of-scholarship players after that. You don't want that to happen again. So you bring on Savion Morrison, and not only does he add more depth, but he would be your next best running back. So that is something that clearly raises your level of play. Craig Young mentioned he'd be uh, 72.1. Linebacker slash safety, so if we just put him in either category, here's where he'd rank. He would rank as the second-best linebacker for KU, or he would rank as the second-best safety, only behind Kenny Logan. And the linebacker he would be behind would be Nick Channel, who that's like a very limited snap count. So in theory, I, I guess Craig Young's was limited too, but Nick Channel really only came on there for specific plays because he was a good run stopper at times and late in game when it was garbage time, maybe you're playing the backups or whatnot. So Craig Young would be one of the team's best linebackers or safeties. You're making the team better. Kalon Gervin, I mentioned his, his grades weren't necessarily the best. Never been above a 64 in his time at Michigan State. Um, you'd think he gets maybe a little better because it'll be his super senior year, right? You add even more experience. You add um, another year just physically development. Last year, though, great at a 61.5. Again, not great. That would still be KU's third best corner. You're usually going to get three or four corners on the field in a game. I don't know. You might rotate into a fifth even, I guess. But if you're playing nickel, you're playing dime, there's another defensive back out there. A lot of times it's another corner. So you're adding another starter in Kalon Gervin. That gets you better. Eric Gilliard, as I mentioned, 59 overall grade. It's a misleading grade because if you use him right, then you're more focused on the great tackling grade and his ability to stop the run. And then the pass covered grade isn't going to be weighted as importantly because you shouldn't be using him in as many of those snaps. So if you use it right, it's going to be even better than the 59 overall grade. But even if it is just the 59 overall grade, that still ranks second for KU among their linebackers, again, only behind Nick Channel. And then you have Nolan Gorchika, or Chishka, however you pronounce it, 58.3 grade for an offensive lineman. I, I said earlier, you know, he might be more of a developmental guy. It was only 21 snaps, very tiny sample side, but funny enough, the 58.3 would rank as the third best grade for any offensive lineman, center guard, or offensive tackle for KU. <laughs> a different level of competition and everything. I, I still expect him to be more of a, you know, maybe he's a backup this year, maybe works into a starting spot in a year or two. But the fact that he has that grade, maybe you do convince yourself he could be a starter. So again, all these guys you're bringing in fit positions of need. In some instances, they fit spots where they can be here three, four, two years down the road where it's not just a one-year thing. It's not just a grad transfer coming in for a year to sure something up. You are getting multiple years out of them and, and just try to bring them along in the program for a couple years. But it's the fact that you are bringing in all guys right now through that transfer portal that would be immediate upgrades over what you currently have. And with all the development that we think is going to happen under this staff, under Matt Gildersleeve, getting another year in an offseason in this scheme. You're improving the roster. You should have internal self-improvement. Man, this is a really exciting time to be a KU football fan. We said at the end of the year, this is probably the most positive progress you've had since when? I don't know. 
I mean, you could argue there was a time in, in Les Miles' first year, so really not that long ago, two years, where you know you go 3-9 and nine and Brent Deerman was rolling offensively. Maybe after the Texas game, like that was the moment for you when you felt more excited than you had in a decade. But really outside of that, this is probably the most excited you've been between the end of this year, how you've done already in the offseason, cleaning up some of these transfers and so forth. You've probably felt in the decade, and that's pretty darn cool. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk. We'll share the Lance Leipold presser tomorrow from National Signing Day on RCST. Uh, coming up next, we, uh, we'll talk some more KU basketball. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com. Depend on it.